All right, friends, a, uh, a very warm welcome. This is Lesson 4 of Journey of the Soul. We have a very special class for you tonight. Before we begin, I need to, uh, to mention a few things, uh, a few very important things. So number one, um, I just muted everybody. Just so we have a nice, clean background, you can unmute at any time. Please, to, to jump in on the conversation. But a few things that I need to mention that are very important uh, as we begin. So number one, uh, a very warm thank you to our core sponsors, Dr. Joy Maxey, uh, who's sponsoring this course in loving memory of her dear father, um, Elaine Alexander, who is sponsoring this course in honor of, of her dear husband, and Eve Bogan, who is, honor, who is sponsoring this course in honor of her dear mother. Thank you for the sponsorships, and thank you for helping uh, bring this to our community and to, uh, to so many. Um, I also want to make a special mention to Steve. Is Steve here? I saw Steve before. Um, I'm here. Uh, hey, Steve. Steve. Oh, Steve, I see you. I see your, uh, your box. Um, it, it is with, um, with, uh, with a heavy heart that I, I wrote it in the email, but I, I uh, want to mention it to the group. That Steve's father, Murray, uh, Matalipa Halevi, passed away, um, passed away yesterday. And um, we had the, the incredible honor of, of Murray Howard, Steve's dad, joining us for the first few sessions. And we even had the honor of, uh, of having... Of, of conversing with him at the, at the first session and I think as well at the second session, maybe even the third. And I know that, um, Steve, what your dad said at that first session is really touching and it's words that I, that I will never forget that have uh, certainly made uh, a, a great impact on me, the power of faith and um, just the power of the soul. So um, please accept uh, my heartfelt condolences for the loss of your dad and I'm um, thinking about you and sending lots of love and um, and I know that I'm speaking on behalf of everyone here and sending all of our love and condolences and the passing of your dad. Thank you very much. Of course, of course. Um, okay, let's uh, let's begin today's session. So it's you know certainly the the theme of this course is the journey of the soul, as the name would indicate. This is our fourth session. And today, we're going to explore, continue to explore, the evolving journey of the soul. We've talked about how the soul comes into the body. We spoke about that journey, the kind of the pre-birth journey. We've spoken about the journey of the soul kind of during a person's lifetime. We touched on that a little bit. We spoke... Um, in a previous lesson about the moment of passing and the kind of the immediate aftermath and, and, and how the soul um, slowly uh, um, moves away from the body and from that experience but still remains connected even as it transitions. Um, last week we spoke about the experience of mourning and grief um, and the Jewish traditions associated with that. Today we pick up the journey of the soul into its, next into its next stage of, of life, of reality. So they tell a story about a rabbi who's speaking with an older member of the congregation. And the rabbi is suggesting in the conversation that, uh, that she should start thinking about the hereafter. 
And so she says to the rabbi, Rabbi, I do that all the time. Every time I walk into a room, I ask myself, now, what was I here after? So, yes, 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 we, uh, we always start the class with some measure, some measure of Milsa de Bedichusa channeling the great sage Rabbah who would, would always open up with some, some element of something humorous, even though this is not a humorous topic, but something to kind of open the heart a little bit. So we have to, be, uh, we have to stick to tradition. But today's class is all about, about the afterlife. What is the next stage of life for the soul? Is there a heaven and hell in the Jewish understanding? If yes, what are they like? And what determines where, we'll, where we will end up? So in short, is there an afterlife? And it, it, or what is the afterlife? And, and, and is there even such a thing? I want to tell a story as we begin today's session. Um, it's, it's not really a story. It's more of a parable, but I'll tell it as a story. So the story goes that there were twins. Twins um, in utero. This is before they were born. And they're having a debate. They're having a discussion amongst themselves that turns into a debate. And the question, that what they're debating is, is, is there life after birth? You know, they're living in a certain reality in the womb. They're, this is, again, two fetuses before birth. And there they are, and they exist, and they're eating, and they're drinking, of course, right? They're eating, they're, they're, they're getting nutrition from, from, from their mother. But the big question is, is there life after birth? What happens when we leave this space? What happens? Does it all end, or does it keep on going? What happens? And one of the twins says... I believe that, yes, there is life after birth. And the other one says, who knows? Who says? How do you know? I think it all comes to a crashing end. Now, you and I, that's the end of the story slash parable. Now, you and I know that that's a silly conversation because obviously there's life after birth, right? And how do we know? Very simply, because we're on the other side of that, right? We're on the other side. So we know that birth is not the end of life. Birth is the emergence of life that was in the womb in a new form. Are you with me so far on this? Does this make sense? Yes? In a very similar way, in a very similar way, Judaism and Kabbalah teaches that the life, the reality that we are in right now is but one form of life and reality. And, as, and, and when we reach, when we conclude our mission here on earth in a body, life doesn't end. As we said, from the beginning through now, life doesn't end. Life changes forms. It's like the fetus wondering, what happens when we're, what happens after birth? Is it all over? The answer is, no, it's not all over. On the contrary, it's a, diff, it's a, it's a new experience, a different experience, even an elevated experience independence, etc. And the same thing is true, of course, in a different way, but the same concept is true. Judaism maintains the same thing is true when it comes to what we call death, which, as we know by now, is not the end, but rather a new beginning, a new beginning of life. It's not the end of life. It's the end of the body being animated by that life, but it's certainly not the end of life. Look, 
the reality is that we exist on this side. We right now are not on the other side. And so therefore it makes sense that we don't know. It makes sense that we might, like that one twin, right, might be a little skeptical and say, I don't believe. Or how do you know? Where's the proof? I get it. I get it. But know this. Know that that is due to the fact that we're on this side. But Kabbalah tells us, Judaism tells us, our soul's intuition tells us that there is another side. And that side is, as we've discussed before, the soul opened, the soul in its pure form, unencumbered by a body, but life goes on and life continues. The souls on the other side look at us and say, what did you ever doubt? What was the question ever, right? It's like us questioning this, the fetus, theoretically, who's, who's, who's skeptical about birth being life continuing. Of course it is. We're, we're here. The souls on the other side know the truth and experience the truth. We shouldn't let our lack of experience, so to speak, right, cause us to not believe in the reality of the hereafter, of the afterlife. It's a new birth. It's a new birth. Just like we were once born from in, from in utero to, to out into the world, so too there's another form of birth, and that is what we generally call death, is a birth of a new, a new stage of life. So yes, Judaism teaches that there is most definitely an afterlife. The question that we will address tonight is what does that look like? What does that feel like? What is that like? Is there a heaven? Is there a paradise where souls hang out and bask in uh, divine rays? Is there a hell where souls are punished? These are the questions, some of the questions that we are going to explore in this session. I want to begin our exploration by asking you to share with me questions that you might have about the afterlife, questions that you might have about heaven and hell and, 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 and the hereafter. So at this point, I'd like you to please, if you have a question, again, this is, it's a bit open-ended. I, I want to know what questions you're thinking, what questions you have. I can't promise we're going to address all the questions, but I want to hear as many as possible so that it can help guide the conversation tonight because there's so much to talk about and I'd love to be able to know what you're wondering so that it can help guide the conversation as we go on. So unmute and we'll do one at a time. Jump in. Donna, I see your hand is raised. Jump right in, please. I'm wondering, um, we've spoken a lot about how um, survivors or, I don't know, Mexican or whatever, people, <laughs> you know, can give marriage, anyone can give marriage to people who passed away but in their honor. What about so many situations, for whatever reason, um, people pass away and there's nobody really living that's taking the time, has the concern, you know, you know, to do that. So what happens, so what happens to those souls 
on earth taking care? Excellent question. Excellent question. Your question is, who, who helps guide the souls that are passed on if there don't seem to be relatives or loved ones that are, that are, um, that are mindful, maybe saying Kaddish, maybe visiting, maybe, what, if, what if there's no one that's, uh, that's doing these things? Well, how does that journey go? Excellent question. I, I will try. And tonight, uh, my, my, my goal will be to, to address that in the conversation. Thank you. This is exactly why I wanted to ask. I wanted to open up to know the questions that are out there. Um, Toba, I see you. Yes, Toba, go ahead. Um, I'd like to know what, where this concept of the afterlife began. Where is it in our sources? Okay, so that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go through all the sources tonight. You'll see. I, I don't even have to tell you the sources because it's literally in the book. Just look at uh, just look at the top of the text, and you'll see where it's coming from. It's it's all over Judaism, from the Talmud to the Midrash to the Kabbalah. It's all it's all sourced in in classic Jewish thought. If you're asking, if, if your question is, are there scriptural sources in the written Torah, or is this something from the oral Torah? The answer is there are allusions to it, hints to it in the written Torah. But it's, it's explicated, it is described and explained in the oral tradition, which is not just rabbinic, just to clarify, it's not rabbinic interpretation, but it's tradition that Moses got at Sinai. Moses did not write down everything. Moses wrote down what he was told to write down, and the rest, the explanations, the other details, he was told to share, and it's passed down through all the generations, and this is what we have as the oral tradition. I'm doing this on one leg, anticipating what your question might be. If your question is, what are the sources that we're going to directly use, it's in the book. If your question is, are there biblical sources, the answer is there are some, but not for all the details. All the details are found in the oral tradition. Well, you mentioned the biblical sources, even though it's not... I, it's allusions to it. There are allusions to, to the afterlife and to the hereafter and the messianic era. I, I may mention it, but maybe you and I can have a conversation after the class, maybe after the class. This is a good after the class conversation. I can mention the verses. Judith, I saw you have a question. Yeah, so I went to see a shaman. Well, I actually have a few questions, but I'm going to summarize them. I went to see a shaman. While I was there, she said she was receiving my father and spoke to me, you know, about some things about him. Number one, does Judaism believe that that is possible? Um, number two, she said that he was playing cards when he was with his brother. Do we believe in the afterlife that our loved ones reunite with their loved ones? And number three, she said that he came to us now as a bird. So when we, like, because she said, you know, do you have a window over the kitchen? Does your mom, well, your dad is there. If she, when she looks up at the window and she sees a bird, that's your father. Do we believe that they incarnate as an animal? So three things. Excellent, excellent questions. A incredible questions. So it's not so simple. So the truth is, my, my intention right now is not to actually answer the questions. It's really to take the questions in, and that will help guide the conversation. Excellent questions. We are going to touch on some of them this week, and the reincarnation question we'll touch on next week in reincarnation. Okay. So Good, good, good. I have to remind myself not to try, not to answer the questions. Although I'm, I'm like, it, the questions are so good, I kind of want to jump on it. But we're gonna do it as we go on. And if by the end of the class, if I don't directly mention it, indirectly it may be addressed. If I don't directly mention it, please everyone remind me again. <laughs> but I, I don't want to jump too far to answer before we lay the the foundation. Steve. So uh, personal and hard. Um, 
questions. So the first is, what is Sheol? What is Gehonim? What are they saying? What are they different? And uh, more importantly, if you have a very difficult passing, if you have a, uh, a struggling passing like my father did, does that substitute for that? Wow. Um, excellent questions. And I, I, w- w- we're going to address these. We're going to address these tonight. The idea of, of uh, show. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Rabbi, I have a question about, sure. um, you know, in the way that uh, we conceive of uh, joy and uh, sadness and uh, pleasure and pain. You know, as humans, we can't really conceive of one without the other. Right. You know? Uh, you can't conceive of lightness, light without knowing what dark is. Um, so I wonder about separating heaven and hell. How can, uh, in the way that we conceive as human beings of heaven, how can it even exist without any conception of hell? Right. Without uh, conception of pain. Excellent question. Excellent question. Without the contrast, can you even have one without the other? Good. Good question. Um, I noticed another, who was, um, Howard, go ahead. Don't forget to unmute. Hold on, Howard, we can't hear you. Don't forget to unmute. Yeah. You got it? Uh-huh. Yeah, there you go. I got you, yeah. It occurs to me when people report about near-death experiences, they have similar reports about, you know, seeing a bright lights and uh, right. It's a, it's a pleasant experience. It's not a, it's not a hellish experience. It's more of a going towards a, a warm, you know, existence of some kind. Uh, can you touch on that at all? Excellent, excellent. Um, near-death experiences. I'm wondering if maybe that would be more appropriate for next week, although. We'll see if we can get to it tonight. It's a little bit not directly on the topic, but let's see if we can let's see if we can touch on it a little bit. We've actually done sessions just on your death experiences. One of the one of the last in-person pre-pandemic events that we had was a Saturday night Cafe Chabad event that we did locally here in Atlanta, and we had somebody speak on that on specifically on that topic. I'll see if we can work it in, but if not this week, then the next week. Um, I'm going to take one more question. Um, uh, let's do two more questions. Adina Malka and then Rhonda. First, Adina Malka, go ahead. Um, what about um, uh, a child that uh, had a difficult relationship with a parent? Do they still say Kaddish for like a family member that they weren't close to? And Ex- Excellent question. Excellent question. Okay, we're going to touch on that. Rhonda. Do we believe in a life review, and what is that like? Mm. Wow, excellent question. Okay, we're definitely going to talk about that. Definitely going to talk about that. It's a, a very direct um, uh, topic that we're going to, to speak on. Um, I noticed also in the chat, how do we know um, that heaven exists if no one has come back to tell us? Um, so Judaism tells us. The question is, how does Judaism know? And if we believe that Kabbalah has received wisdom and it's, uh, the Torah is divinely inspired, then that's, that's all the information that we need. This class is not proving, by the way. This, the intent of this course, the scope of this course is not to prove 
um, the origins of Torah, the authenticity of Torah, um, etc. That's for another series. But this is what Judaism says as far as, um, as, as, as what this is. Now, um, will the soul of the departed always be with the ones left behind? Excellent question. Will the souls of the departed always be with the ones left behind? Good. We're going to try to talk, um, speak to that as well. All right. This is very helpful for me because I've, I've, I've seen, I, I kind of seen at least from some of you questions that are, that are relevant, that, that you're thinking about. Let's jump into our conversation. And the way I want to do this is by asking another question, but it's not, it's not an open-ended question as much as it is kind of, uh, uh, I want you to tell me specifically and answer this question. And, and the question is, and anybody can, can jump in on this, um, how are heaven and hell typically depicted? How do we typically depict, or how is heaven and hell typically depicted in whatever, in literature, in other sources? Give me a description of heaven and hell. Anybody jump in on this? Feel free to jump in. Heaven is white and cloudy. Heaven is angels floating around and hell is fire and brimstone. Okay, so I see white and clouds and angels and fluffy for the ones for the one for heaven. And hell is uh, fiery, red, hot, <laughs> right? I mean, it's nice when there's warm weather, especially with this cold snap that's happening across the country. Um, but if it gets too hot, then, uh, th then, then it's already leaving the realm of heaven and going the other direction. So that's, that's the way it's typically, these are the ways it's typically depicted. Um, they tell a story about the synagogue sisterhood, that the, a whole busload of the, from the synagogue sisterhood um, was traveling, and, um, and the bus had tragically had an accident, and, uh, and, and everybody passed away. And a, a terrible, terrible, tragic accident. And they all go up, wonderful, wonderful women, wonderful people. They all go up to heaven. But the computers are down, you know, so they can't exactly get in. The computer systems are down. So they say temporarily, with all apologies, please step into hell for a few moments, for a few minutes until we get this sorted out. About 10 minutes later, the, the heaven angels get a call from the hell angels saying, hey, you got to get them out of here. They're already organizing, the sisterhood is already organizing a fundraiser, and they're installing central air. This, we gotta, we gotta, okay. So that's a joke about the, the tip, the way we typically think of heaven and hell is, you know, white and fluffy and clouds and angels and maybe, you know, classical music playing and one and the other one being red and fire and devils and pitchforks and flames being stoked and maybe, maybe, Hard rock. I don't know. I'm not saying that necessarily. It depends if you like. Listen, if, if you like it, then it's heaven. But just saying. So that's typically the way the, the way we perceive it. The way it's been it's been depicted. A, a, and the second question is that I want to ask again. Not an open ended question, but second direct question is, and what determines where we go, right? Where where a soul goes? How how is that process, or or how is it determined? Who goes where? So again, jump in. What's the way we typically understand this? How is it determined? Based on? Just jump in. Anybody? Say it again. How you behave during life. How you behaved. If you're good, you go to heaven. If not so good, go to hell. All right. And, that, and, and you know what? It's possible that we might believe that Judaism 
you know, is, uh, says the same thing. Um, and in truth, you look at the texts, and it might seem that that is indeed the case. You look at some Jewish texts, and, and it might seem uh, a, a little bit familiar. I'm going to share my screen with you. You should have books at this point. If not, uh, definitely call me or email me or text me after the class and let me know, and we'll sort that out right away. Um, this is lesson number four. I'm going to share my screen with you just so we're all on the same page. Take a look at, we're going to skip first pages, kind of, wow, very, very dark. The fire opening and then this other picture. Okay. All right. Let's go to text 1A, page 132. I'm going to make the screen bigger. And Toba, I see you. You're the first one here on my screen. If you don't mind, please unmute and read this from Ramba, Maimonides. The 11th of the 13 principles of Jewish faith is that God, blessed be he, rewards those who observe the commandments of the Torah and punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. Well, there you go. Doesn't that, that kind of sounds like uh, the typical understanding of heaven and hell, right? That God rewards those who do good things and punishes those who do the opposite. Take a look in case you're wondering where this reward and punishment is happening. Take a look at my, you know, Toba, please just read 1B. It's part of Maimonides as well. Continue. The greatest reward is the pleasures of the world to come. The strongest punishment is to be cut off from the world to come. Boom. So the same Rambam, the same Maimonides says that we believe that God punishes us, those who do good and, and sorry, my, my apologies. God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do the opposite. And where is the greatest, what's the ultimate reward and punishment? It's about the world to come, which essentially means the afterlife. So um, the, the righteous enjoy pleasure in the world to come, and the opposite for the opposite are cut off from that pleasure if, if we're, not, we're not doing what we need to be doing. And, and again, it sounds very, very similar. It sounds very typical to the depictions of heaven and hell, heaven being a paradise and hell being, you know, not fun. And that being reserved exclusively for those that are doing, you know, the good for the, the, the paradise reward for those who are doing good and the opposite for the opposite. Which begs the question, so is God really so, um, so petty that he's keeping score of what we're doing? That's what God has, that's what God's worried about? It's like, oh, oh, wait, oh, oh, you did that. Oh, one second. Let me just make sure to mark that and, and check that. Is that really what's going on, that God is so, like, scorekeeping of exactly what we're doing? And then, in addition to keeping the score, then God gets us back for us not being perfect, for us not doing uh, maybe what we should be doing. So, so God is, number one, keeping score, and then number two, making sure that we're being punished, getting us back for this. Does God really not have anything better to do than that? It seems a little bit, I don't know, it just seems a little bit not so, I, I don't know what to, how to say this without, you know, by still being respectful. It, it just seems a little bit, um, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem so, so divine, so godly, so noble to be keeping track and then like, you know, Oh, you're going to get punished, you're going to get rewarded. It, it, it just it seems a little, bit, a little bit strange. Now, I will tell you that some people, and I've spoken, spoken to a lot of people over the years, some people love this. Some people love knowing that if you do good, you're going to get a reward, and if you don't do good, you're not going to get the reward. 
For some people, this works. For some people, they want to know the rules. They want to know the consequences. They want to know reward and punishment. It helps them. And if it helps you, fantastic. However, many of us, again, from experience, many of us, and I would venture to say many of you here tonight, perhaps also feel this way, that maybe this is not so inspiring. Maybe you don't get so inspired by the notion of heaven and hell being reward and punishment. Maybe that's not the most inspiring thing that you heard today. So here's the big idea that I want to share with you off the bat in speaking about heaven and hell from a Jewish perspective. There is a completely different way of understanding these concepts from the way they're typically depicted and even from the way that we might have um, studied or understood what Maimonides wrote there in text 1a and 1b. There's a completely different way of understanding this entire topic and the meaning of heaven and hell. You see, we have this whole reward and punishment thing altogether wrong. And it, it, it's, it, it's understandable that we might have a, a mistaken notion of it, but we need to clarify this right away. You see, it's not that if we do good, right, then we go to Disney World. And if not, then universal. No, I'm kidding. Nothing wrong with universal, right? Then, you know, ooh, then you don't get, you don't get the reward. I, you know, I, it's been a while since I've been to Universal or Disney. So again, if anybody from Universal is listening, my apologies. It wasn't meant to be specific. It's just, you know, it's the first thing that came to mind. But this is what we might have thought about reward and punishment, right? You do good, and so you get a reward. Uh, go to Disney. Don't do good, ooh, you're not going to get that reward, right? That's not the way it works. You see, reward and punishment is not something extrinsic, external to the experience, rather, to our actions. Rather, reward and punishment from a Jewish understanding is the natural consequence of those actions. Let me give you an example. Simple example, and throughout this session, I'm going to give you multiple examples. I'm thinking already of three examples that I'm going to give. This will be the first. It's the most basic. So you tell a child not to touch fire, right? Don't touch fire. It's dangerous. And then, unfortunately, the child's hand gets a little bit too close to the fire, and it hurts. It, it burns. I mean, not, nothing too serious, but just you know, a little, it feels the heat. The, child, the hand feels the heat. I'll ask you a question. So, is that a punishment? Right? Oh, the fire has a safe space. And when you violate the fire, the fire saves space, right? The fire takes retribution by burning you. Is, is that what it is? You and I know, of course, that's not at all what it is. It's a natural consequence. The fire is hot. You put your hand in the fire. The hand is going to get burnt. It's not going to be good, right? That's, it's, it's natural. A Jewish understanding of reward and punishment is not that they are extri ex extrinsic, external um, punishments or rewards for what we're doing, but rather natural consequences. I will explain this, in a very, hopefully in a very understandable way in a moment, but let's jump right into text number Two. Let me share my screen with you. Again, you have your book, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Take a look at what the Rekanati says. 
Um, let's ask Doreen. Are you up to reading? Text number two. Perfect. Please unmute and wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Um, unmute and jump right in. Yeah, you're good. Do not consider the punishments described in the Torah as comparable to penalties a person incurs for disobeying the decree of a mortal king. Not at all. Rather, they're completely natural consequences. For one who fails to observe a Torah commandment is denied the good that naturally results from its observance. It is comparable to one who fails to sow his field and therefore cannot reap a harvest, or one who fails to wear clothes and is then cold. It's as natural a consequence as the warmth provided by fire, the wetness of water and the satiation of bread. In the same way, it is the nature of each mitzvah to provide the positive consequences that are promised for its observance or the negative consequences that are stated regarding its transgression. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, and I hope that reading makes sense and resonates. And he gives, you know, I said I was going to give examples. He gives examples right here. If you don't plant, right, it's not going to grow. If you, if you fail to wear warm clothes or clothes, I guess, right? He says fails to wear clothes, I guess, at all, or whatever, warm clothes, and then you're cold. Yeah, it's a natural, it's not a punishment. It's not like the snow is getting you back for walking barefoot in it by giving you frost, not you, but by giving one frostbite. It's not a punishment, it's a natural consequence. And so I want to be very clear in how we translate that back to our conversation because this transition is going to be really important. You ready? What is reward and punishment from a Jewish place? What does it mean? Very simple, very simple. And for this, um, you know, I'm not going to give you, uh, do I want to give the example right now? Yes, let me give the example. Okay, this is the next example, and I think this is going to complete the circle. Imagine you're planning a romantic vacation. You're planning a nice getaway to, I don't know, maybe we can come up with a, a romantic destination. Ah, who knows, right? Safe travel, you know, obviously safety first. We're in a pandemic. I have to be careful when I give these examples now because, you know, travel and everything. But imagine you have a really beautiful, romantic getaway planned, and it's been planned for six months. I'm going to give you two scenarios. Imagine the couple is on great terms, and they're, they're, do, they're loving, they're lo they, they love each other, and they're doing nice things for each other, and they speak nicely to each other. Everything is going well. And then the trip happens. How is it going to, how, how is it going to, I mean, right, how is it going to roll out? I mean, we don't know all the details, obviously, but how would it kind of uh, transpire? It would be a nice, loving, romantic getaway, exactly the way it's meant to be, right? And the more love, the more demonstrable, obvious, open love and communication that exists, the nicer the vacation. It's going to be a beautiful vacation. What happens if, in the days, weeks, or even months leading up to this, right? What happens if the couple is not, not doing so well, you know, with the relationship, and they're maybe not treating each other so nicely, maybe not saying the nicest things to each other, and there's a little bit of friction, and maybe not even a little bit, maybe even a little bit more than a little bit friction, yeah? And then they're going on this getaway, What's going to happen? 
It might go from paradise to what we call a living hell. Correct? Can you perceive of that possibility? Yes? Again, not specifically focusing on, 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 any, on any real life example. Again, theoretically, could that be a possibility? Where you have two people in paradise, but it feels like hell? Is that possible? Yes? Because of the friction, the disconnect? Yes? It's possible. It's possible. So what I, what the, the example that I'm giving you is the nature of reward and punishment as seen as consequence, right? It's not like Hawaii is going to reward you for the effort that you put in the relationship prior by giving you a good time or that Hawaii, oh, did I just pick a destination? Look at that. Um, I don't know if I picked it before, but it, it seems to have happened um, almost organically. So, yeah. Sure. But, but, um, it's not like Hawaii is rewarding you for, you know, saying nice things or punishing you for maybe not saying nice things. No. This is a very natural consequence and a result of either being close to the other or not being so close to the other. If you're really close to the other, yeah, if you're really close to the other, it's going to feel amazing. It's going to be an amazing experience, right? Because you're close. And if you are... Okay, say hi quickly, and then there you go. Okay, love you. Jump down. Can I help? Um, sure. But if we are not close, if, if, if the two are not close to each other, then the natural consequence is that it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. This is the key to understanding the nature of heaven and hell from a Jewish perspective, and that is that the mitzvot that we do foster a connection, a spiritual connection. And the, re and the experience of that connection is what we call paradise. And the opposite is true. The opposite is true when we do the opposite. So when there is a, 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 um, the opposite of a mitzvah, it creates a disconnection. And the result of that disconnection is feeling disconnected. And the feeling of disconnection is the punishment. In other words, the connection is the reward and the disconnection is the punishment. What creates the connection? Connection. What creates the disconnection? Disconnection. Does that make sense what I just said? Right? If you're connected, the reward is you enjoy the connection. If you're disconnected, right, the consequence is you're disconnected. So the couple that goes on the romantic getaway to Hawaii... Right? I'm glad we have a destination now. Finally, we can finally buy the tickets. Right? So the couple that goes on the, on the, uh, on the, the, uh, the romantic getaway to Hawaii, if they're connected, they're going to enjoy the connection. If they're disconnected, they're going to experience the disconnection. It's not a punishment or reward. It's a natural consequence. It's not even a consequence. It literally, to use an overused modern expression, it is what it is. Right? And I know that usually means something else. But it literally is what it is. A connection is a connection, and a disconnection is a disconnection. And the connection feels good, and the disconnection doesn't feel good. But that's what it is. It, it, it is simply what it is. So let's take a look now, with this in mind, let's take a look at text number three. All right? Ah, from Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Um, Sylvia, please unmute, if you will, and read text number three. It's a very short text. 
I just requested an unmute, so you just follow that and it should go. No, tell me if you got it. No. All right, I can come back. Okay, it's, it's cool, we'll come back. Oh, you got it now, okay, good. Okay, I did. Perfect. Okay. Uh, text number three, oh, I see ethics of my book. Of the yeah. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. The retribution for a sin is a sin. So what, what Pierre Gilbert is telling us is something phenomenal. Yeah, I do a mitzvah, what do I get? A mitzvah. You get a mitzvah. In other words, a mitzvah is a connection. So wh what do I get? Uh, you don't get anything else. You just, you got a mitzvah. You're connected, right? You just did something for, for the other, for, for God, right? For your soul, for purpose. Like that's, that's the reward. It's not extrinsic. It's not like, oh, I did a mitzvah. Um, where's the check? It's not, it's not like a separate thing. The mitzvah is the mitzvah and the retribution. I, I don't even like that translation because the same word is used, schar and schar. Schar means the, um, the consequence. The consequence of a mitzvah is a mitzvah, and the consequence of a sin is the sin. Right? I mean, it's it is what it is. It, it's it, a mitzvah is a connection, and a, a sin, the opposite of a mitzvah is a disconnection. And so that's what that that's what that's what ensues. Now, with this in mind, this is really important. With this in mind, we have a much greater clarification on on what is the nature. What is the nature of the afterlife? What is the nature of heaven? What is the nature of hell? This is clarified in a very powerful way. It's clarified in a very... Yes? Um, are there not three things that have specific consequences? Uh, one being maybe adultery, uh, and there are two others where there, you have specific con consequences. And anything, anything could have a specific consequence... But again, we're looking at some. We're looking at a at a broader lens, from a, a with a paradigm shift, right? This is not getting into nitty gritty. You did this, that happens. You did that, something else happens. This is an overall look at from a Jewish perspective, at the notion of reward and punishment, yeah. and. Well, there are specific punishments. I, I'm, I'm, Ray, I'm, Ray, I'm with you. I'm with you. The Talmud talks about all sorts of things. What I'm trying to tell you is that this is the way this is understood. Yes, you have many sources that say many things. But I'm giving you an overall picture. I'm giving you an overall picture of the nature of reward and consequence from a Jewish perspective. That the greatest reward is the connection. And the greatest punishment is the disconnection. Right? It's like asking the question when you're on the vacation with the other and, and, and you're not looking at the other person, right? You can't speak to the other person. You're in a hotel room. It's gorgeous. And you have nothing to say to them. Yeah? And then on top of that, you're overcharged for the minibar. Which is the punishment? Tell me, what's the punishment? Yeah? You got overcharged by the minibar or that you can't get along with the, or that there's a disconnect in the relationship, right? What I'm saying is there's no point to monetize, right? There's no point to, to go monetizing. This sin is monetized like that, and that sin is monetized like that. That's, that's secondary, and that itself has other layers of interpretation. 
What I'm trying to tell you is the core of it. At the core of it is a simple dynamic, right? The simple dynamic is, is there a connection or a disconnection? That's what it's all about, right? So, what is afterlife? What is heaven and hell? What is reward and punishment? It's simply the experience of being connected or being disconnected. And so the big idea here is that God is not punishing us with hell or rewarding us with heaven. The way we live our lives determines if what we experience after this will be comfortable or uncomfortable, which tells us that there is no such thing as heaven or hell. It's the same experience, right? There are no two Hawaii's. It's one place. It's the same hotel. It could be the same hotel room. It's the same space. Heaven and hell are not two destinations off the highway. Oh, you turn off the highway at this exit and it's heaven. The next exit is hell. That's not what it is. That's a very, it's, it's a very not Jewish way of looking at things. Heaven and hell are the same place. It's not a place. It's the same reality. The question is, where are we? Right? It's not, where are we inside? And again, it's like you want to use a safer example, maybe. It's like you went on a ski vacation. You went to um, Aspen. Beautiful ski vacation. So if you took a coat, gloves, boots, etc., you'll have a great time. But if you took a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops and try to make it down the mountain, it's not going to be a fun experience. The same mountain, the same Aspen, the same resort, but how we are determines the experience. We have not drilled down into exactly what Gehenna is, hell is, what exactly what Ganeidim Paradise is. We haven't drilled down, but I'm starting to try to develop a picture. And the first thing is to undo this very embedded, I believe, very embedded perspective of reward and punishment being about um, getting you or rewarding you extrinsically. And maybe it's because we're so used to this being the nature of reward and punishment. Like we go to work and we're rewarded with a paycheck that is completely extrinsic, right? Completely extrinsic. Yeah, we go to work, we do one thing, and as a result, we get money. Now, if you're a farmer and you plant seeds and then they grow, then it's, then it's intrinsic because what you did is what you get. But if you're doing something else and get you know, a paycheck for it, it's disconnect. There's a disconnect. And so we are forgiven for looking at everything with that same gap, be the gap between what we do and what we're getting. So we think, well, we did a mitzvah, so God should give us a spiritual reward. Or we did something not good, so then God would give us, God forbid, something not good. And I'm trying to break that. And it's probably going to take, it's probably not going to happen overnight, but it's important that at least we know that this is not true. At least we should know that it's not true, even if we're not fully ready to embrace it. For some reason, maybe we're still trying to hold on to this extrinsic reward and punishment model. I don't know why, but it's not a Jewish model. It's not a Jewish model. And 
sources, other sources from anywhere else in Judaism is not going to change the fact that Judaism does not believe in extrinsic reward and punishment. It's intrinsic, it's inherent, right? If the relationship is not in a good place, it's not going to be comfortable. If it is in a good place, it's going to be comfortable. That's the way it is. Now, let's take this core idea and now understand a little bit more about, okay, so what is Gehenim? What is hell? So now we know that it's not sort of, it's not any sort of destination, devil's playground. It's not, that's not what it is. It's not about fire and pitchforks designed to punish and torture us. That's not what it is because there's no such thing as extrinsic punishment, trying to get us with punishment. It's not, it's not a thing. The question though is, well, what, so then what is it and what purpose does it serve? So here's a very simple way of understanding it. A very simple way of understanding it is that hell Gehenim, in Hebrew, is the state of being that we create when falling short of our potential and expectations. Said a little bit differently, it is the experience of being fully aware now that the soul, after its passing, now that the soul is stripped away from the body and from any material attachment, it's, because, it's being fully aware of all of our moments of distraction and disconnectedness from our source. Somebody put it, somebody, I had a discussion with a, a good friend of mine last night and we were talking about unrelated topics and he mentioned something that I thought was a, was a great line. He said, you know what it's like? He says, it's like the you as you are meeting the you that you could have been. I'm going to say that again. It's like the you as you are meeting the you that could have been. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. I'm only getting very, very few head shakes, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep on going. I'm undeterred, right? It's the you as you are meeting the you that could have been with that full awareness, with that full awareness of what could have been, of what your potential was. And that creates the pain. It's not extrinsic pain. It's not extrinsic agony, God forbid. It's the full self-awareness of who we are, what we did, what we didn't do. In other words, the state of the union, straight up, like the vacation, which brings out the real state of of, of the relationship. Like, are we in a good place or are we not in a good place? And no, Disney is not going to change that. And no, Hawaii. What does Hawaii have? I don't know. Islands. And the islands are not going to change that. Right? The islands don't change the relationship. Right? It, it is what it is, like I said before. So, Gehenim, which is called hell, I guess, but that means something else in other, other frameworks. Gehenim is the experience of becoming fully aware. Again, there's no... There are no curtains anymore. There are no rationalizations anymore. The body is no longer getting in the way of the soul's full awareness of self also. And so the soul recognizes what it is, its true potential, recognizes also what it did, where it excelled, but also where it fell short. And the experience of that can be profoundly painful. The experience of recognizing its state, or at least its 
previous state, right? It's it's state that it was just in. That can be, could be, doesn't have to be, could be painful. But at the same time, that pain is also profoundly therapeutic. Think about it. It's only when we confront our shortcomings. This is a general rule in life. When we confront our shortcomings that we can own them and then be free of them. It's when we recognize who we are, where we are, honestly and openly, that we can then begin a healing process. So the soul after, again, we're talking about what happens next. So the soul separates from the body, there's a transition, and then, and then at some point, this next stage kicks in. The soul is confronted with the truth, confronted with the truth of its own shortcomings, and because of this, because of this, it allows the soul to let go of its material attachments and any vestiges of those material attachments. So I just want to explain that last thing that I said, which is a little bit new. So the soul, having spent time on earth, even after it separates from the body, which is something we spoke about in lesson two, still remains, still retains somewhat of an attachment, at least a nostalgia for the body. But faced with, faced with um, some of the disconnections, some of the shortcomings that it had during its journey with the body on earth, so that allows the soul to kind of divest itself of that attachment and move to a place of pure connection with its source. I'm going to share a text with you, um, text number seven. We're, I'm, I'm doing this, some of these texts in a little bit of a different order. Just follow my lead and, uh, and, and you'll see, you'll, see uh, you'll get the picture. Take a look. Let me pull this up. Text number seven. Okay, I believe this is a long text. I am going to read this. This is from Rabbi Arya Kaplan, bottom of, what page is this? Bottom of page 139, text 7. Um, I don't know why it looks like the CBS logo here. You notice that? Above text 7, looks like CBS. Whatever. For whatever reason, that's what it is. Then, says Rabbi Arya Kaplan, an individual will also see himself in a new light. Even in our mortal physical state, looking at oneself can sometimes be pleasing and at other times very painful. Imagine standing naked before God with your memory wide open, completely transparent, without any jamming mechanism or reducing valve to diminish its force. You will remember everything you ever did. You will see it in the light of the unshaded spirit or if you will, in God's own light that shines from one end of creation to the other. The memory of every good deed and mitzvah will be the sublimest of pleasures. But your memory will also be open to all the things of which you are ashamed. They cannot be rationalized away or dismissed. You will be facing yourself fully aware of the consequences of all your deeds. We, will, we all know the terrible shame and humiliation experience when one is caught in the act of doing something wrong. Imagine being caught by one's own memory with no place to escape. A number of our great teachers write, that the fire of Gehenna, Gehenna is, ex is actually the burning shame one experiences because of one's sins. Of course, these concepts, as used by our sages, may also contain deeper mysteries and meanings, but a major ingredient of this fire may be shame. How else could one characterize the agony of unconcealed shame upon a soul? We are taught in the Talmud that the judgment of the wicked lasts 12 months. 
the pain eventually subsides. I want to give you another paradigm along these lines to understand this. And again, there are different analogies, different terms, different you know, angles that we can approach, but I, I hope that it's all speaking to one perspective here that has you know, different facets, but one core idea. Imagine an audit, right? There's nowhere to go. It's, it's, a, it's an open audit. Everything is, everything is on the table. Everything is out for all to see. There's no, there's, there's no hiding the books, right? There's not, nothing is hidden. Everything is out in the open. And it's not about being accountable to anyone else. The accountability is, first and foremost, to ourselves. That's the big idea. It's not an extrinsic punishment. It's, it's, it's not a punishment. It's an inherent, intrinsic reality. Faced with our reality. Right? The full reality, not the sugar-coated version. Right? Faced with the full reality, are we going to be able to stand proud and confident or is it going to be a little uncomfortable? Gehennem, from a Jewish perspective, is exactly this discomfort, which means it's not a punishment, it's not extrinsic, it's not God getting us, it's not God keeping score and taking retribution. Oh, you did this. Well, let's add some more coals to the fire. Let's add some more wood. Really? That's God? Right? That's God? What kind of God is that? It's not an extrinsic... There's no punishment from God. What it is, is our souls being laid open for ourselves, looking in the mirror. And the pain of the regret... That itself acts as a cathartic experience, as a soul catharsis to melt away the layers of attachment to the negative and to move into a pure space. It's kind of like, kind of, you know, recognizing one's shortcomings. The reason why so often we do things that we shouldn't is because we get away with it. But sometimes, you know, it happens when we can no longer get away with it and then there's no option to go down that route. And yes, I get it that the soul in the afterlife does not have a body with which to indulge in, uh, in, in, in untoward behaviors. True. But any vestige, any sense, any trace of attachment is singed away, is burned away with this experience, this cathartic experience of Gehinnom. This is the Jewish understanding of Gehinnom. It's not an extrinsic punishment. It's not God getting us. None of this is true. Take a look at a very important text. We're going to go back a little bit. This is text number six. All right, take a look at text. Hold, hold the question. I hear some, some mics. Hold on one second. Text number six. This is, yeah, I, I want to do text number six. Let's ask um, Donna. Did you read? No, I don't think so, right? No. Yeah, Donna, go ahead. Text number six. Working for the gnome is to refine the soul and rid it of any sickness that it contracted. This is similar to the process of smelting silver, wherein the dross and sediment is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean and free of impurities. Similarly, for the soul to be able to experience the light of the supernal pleasures and bask in God's radiance, it must first be refined in the spiritual fire 
of the whole name whereby the negative is purged from the positive. Yeah, this is what's said in Kabbalah. The idea here is that Gehinnom is a purifying experience. It's like smelting silver, the dross is, and sediment is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean and free of impurities. It leaves a, a pure, a, a pure um, substance in the aftermath of this smelting, purifying process. And the same thing is true with what the soul um, goes through. And this is true for every soul, every soul, Be because it's impossible for us to go through this life without mistakes and without doing things that we know better not to do. It's normal and it's natural. And it's also natural that when the soul leaves the body and the soul is now able to see truth, that the soul, it's natural that the soul will feel that inner fire, that inner shame. And that helps, that helps, again, purify remove any layers of attachment to that, right? It's, it's no longer nostalgic. Oh, you know, that was, those were good times, right? <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. It, that helps burn off, so to speak. That helps remove the impurities from the soul. And then the soul is now in a pure state that it can, as we'll see soon with, when defining paradise, now it can fully and wholly connect with the source. It's kind of like, one second, Ray, hold on. It's kind of like the experience of needing to, like in a relationship. I know I'm using this example a lot tonight. It's, you know, imagine you're on that vacation, right? And you're in that hotel room and things, let's say, have not been going well, right? And it's uncomfortable and you're not really enjoying it. You have two options. You can either continue to, to, not, to not enjoy it. Or you can pretend like everything's fine and pretend like you're enjoying it, but also not really enjoy it. Or you can have an honest conversation and work through the issues and try to get to a better place. Is that not the best option? Yes. Is that the most difficult option? Yes. Is it the most helpful option? Yes. What I'm trying to tell you is something so simple that none of this is out is is like supernatural outside the realm of our framework of the way we understand how things work and the way relationships work. If it, for the soul to be in a good place, right for itself, in a healthy place, uh, now that it's no longer in the body, for it to 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 be to 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 be in its in its purest space, it has to go through this process. It has to go through this self vetting process. So. Somebody asked before, is there a, I forgot what the language was, is there a kind of like a review, a life review process? It's less somebody else looking and judging and more of an immediate knowing. I mean, look, even our souls and our bodies, you and I know right now exactly what we're proud of and exactly what we're not proud of. No one needs to tell you. No one needs to, no one needs to admonish. No one needs to, no one else needs to tell you or me the stuff where we've fallen short. More than anyone else, we know. And yes, we know it at the same time that we justify it, but we know we're justifying it, right? We know. More than anyone else, we know the truth. When the soul is no longer encumbered by the body, it goes through a process of letting go. And that process of letting go 
is not just painful in the sense that it has to say goodbye to the body. That we spoke about in lesson two. But there's a process in which it has to work through. Work through the moments in which it fell short and get rid of that and move beyond that and get to a better place so it can connect with its beloved, i.e. the source with a capital S. Ray, go ahead. Jump in. Uh, I'm looking at the Yom Kippur monster. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, um, okay, but it definitely says for specific sins, it says the, the four death penalties uh, of the human court, stoning, burning, beheading, and strangling. So it definitely gives specific consequences for specific sin. I hear you, I hear you, but that's talking about human courts if somebody commits a crime, but even in a case, God forbid, of a capital punishment, according to Judaism, and this is Rambam, this is not even Kabbalah, this is straight up um, um, halacha, Jewish law. It says, and it's from the Talmud also, it says the purpose of capital punishment was to bring a person, inspire a person to a soul catharsis, to fully regret the actions, and one is supposed to engage the person in, in acts of tshuva before the capital punishment. But these are extreme cases that, 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 you're, that you're talking about. So again, 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 the, the core idea here is that the reward and punishment in the afterlife, it depends how, look, it, I, I under, the, it's so ingrained in, I don't know if it's cultural, societal, Western society, I don't know if it's other societies, I don't know if it's uh, if it's religious in origin, not Jewish religious in origin, I don't know where it comes from. But this notion of we're going to be rewarded with like clouds and angels or punished by devils with, with, uh, with, with pitchforks, it's so ingrained that, again, I understand that it's really hard to take it out. And, you can fight, and, and, and I understand how you might think that that's also reflected in Jewish thought. But we have sources that clearly state that this is not what's going on, which means that if it seems like that, we just have to look at it again and understand what it's really saying. So again, it, it, the examples are not going to change the fact. The fact is that reward and punishment right, are not extrinsic. They're intrinsic. And the reward and punishment means, what does it mean? It means either the closeness of the relationship or the pain and the separation. But the pain and separation is not the end. It's a process by which we slowly move past that and get to a close place. So again, standing the soul, standing outside the body in a pure divine place, right? In that divine whole place of truth, nowhere to hide, no excuses, no justifications, no rationalizations, no... Drang a cup. You know what that means? In Yiddish, drang a cup means no twisting the truth anymore, right? At that point, the soul will inevitably have things that it feels the disconnection about. And through that feeling, it actually works through it. It is cathartic. It's soul catharsis. That's the definition of Gehinnom. Gehinnom is defined as purgatory. You know what purgatory means? Purgatory means purge. You know what purge means? To get rid of, right? To purge means to get rid of. It's getting rid of negative, negative attachments. It's getting rid of that in order to be cleansed. That's the way it is. Um, Gehenim then, 
This is very important. Gehenna, I'm using the Hebrew term because hell has its own connotations and not Jewish connotations. So Gehinnom, which is the Hebrew version of this, or the Jewish understanding of it, Gehinnom is not a destination. It's a stage of cleansing. It's a cleansing stage. For example, you might say to your clothing, how dare you get dirty? I banish you to the washing machine. Right? As a punishment, you're going to go into the washing machine and face the agitator. I don't know if there's an agitator anymore. It used to be called the agitator. Am I wrong here? I don't think I'm wrong. The middle piece, oh, us and our fancy front loaders in 2021. I get it. But the old school top loaders with that center piece that took up half your space, right? And then everything got wrapped around and nothing got clean. Remember that? Yeah, of course we all remember that. The middle thing was called an agitator. So one might say, ah, you caused me trouble. Oh, I was at that dinner and then the wine fell and it got my shirt all dirty and whatever it is. And I looked silly because you didn't repel the wine magically. Oh, you got me. I'm going to get you to the agitator. See how silly that sounds? You see how silly that sounds? You're punishing the shirt by putting in the agitator? No. You're cleaning the shirt so you can wear it again. All right. Right? And the wise will understand the parallel. Gehenim is not a destination. Oh, you messed up. Down you go. Down elevator to the pitchfork place. That's not what it is. I mean, I could do an hour and a half and say the same thing. And I hope you believe me with this. I hope. I don't mind doing the next 15 minutes making sure to say this again and again. I, I don't know how to say it so that, so, that, uh, you know, so that it's more convincing. Judaism does not believe in hell as a destination. It's not a destination. But what do you mean? Aren't people sentenced to hell? Not in Judaism. Not in Judaism. And if, we, if we're stuck in that, it just, unfortunately, is a testament to how other notions have crept in so deeply that we're having trouble, well, purging them from our psyche. Right? But it's not a Jewish idea. Gehenna, hell as a destination, as a punishment, is not a Jewish idea. Gehenna as a state of cleansing, a stage in which the soul is not extrinsically punished, God forbid, but feels its own reality. And some of that is painful. In a world of truth, our full being might not always be comfortable. But that discomfort cleanses and it, the soul self-repairs. And then it connects. And then the soul is cleansed. And there's no need for Gehenna anymore. All souls end up in Gan Eden, in paradise. Souls end up in Gan Eden. Please, please, I ask, please. There's no need to ask, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? All souls, we're talking about normative situations. You're going to ask me extreme cases. I'll tell, I'll tell you my answer. I don't know. I don't run, I don't run the shop. But Judaism teaches what's, what happens normatively. So you're asking me what happens to so-and-so who did such-and-such. 
Again, <laughs> you and I will find out one day when we're on the other side what, what's going on exactly. But the normative, the normative idea, the normative process is a soul lives its life, it separates from the body, it's now open, and, and the light, it's no physical light, but it's, everything is open and clear. There, there are some things that it's proud of, some things it's not so proud of. That pain is cathartic and allows it to let go of all that attachment and segues into a pure space of connection, which is why. And I, from here on out, I'll read just for the, for, this, um, for the sake of expediency. So that's why our sages tell us, Text number nine, each member of the Jewish people has a portion in the world to come. In other words, everyone goes to heaven. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering, oh, but it only says Jewish people. Yeah, it's a Jewish text written to the community. It's like, imagine if we, someone speaking to their congregation says, everyone here is, it's not exclusionary, it's just inclusionary for the audience. All right, it applies to everybody. Each member of the Jewish people has a portion of the world to come. As it is stated, your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. They are the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, in which I take pride. What's the point? The point is that souls end up in a good place. How long is the process of Gehinnom? How long is the process? Oh, I'm sorry. It's the next, uh, it's right up here. Text 8 on the same page. I know I'm going backwards. Don't worry. Text uh, page 141, text 8. The maximum, oh, why did they say sentence? Misleading. The maximum sentence, that sounds like a destination again. The period of time, uh, the duration of the process in Gehenna, even for the wicked, the maximum time is 12 months. I shared this in a previous class. This is why we only say Kaddish for 11 months in one day. Because Kaddish, as we'll see soon, helps the soul heal, helps, the soul, helps ease this process, this cathartic process for the soul. And we would never, we would never presume that our loved ones um, required a full 12 months of, of Gehinnom cleansing. Again, the maximum is 12 months. And then, every, and then what happens next? Wait, 12 months and then what? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Gan Eden, paradise. That's, that's, the, that's the journey of the soul. It's the course, right? Journey of the soul. The soul separates from the body. It has its own process of divesting itself from the body, but then it has its own purification process, which we're discussing tonight. That we call Gehenna. That's the purging process. And it's not so comfortable, right? Like the agitator with the clothes, it kind of moves around a little bit. It's not, I'm not saying physically, but it's a little bit uncomfortable. And then the soul is able to experience Gan which we'll define in a moment and describe, well, what, so that, but, but what is that? But again, timeline, maximum of 12 months, which is why we say Kaddish, 11 months and one day. So we're in the 12th month, but we're not doing the full 12 because we do not wish to assume that our loved ones required a full cycle. You know, on your washing machine, you can go like the full cycle, which takes a really long time. I got a front loader, full disclosure. But like, you know, it takes, it could take like an hour and a half. Like, depending on the thing, because, like, you dial up, yeah, want an extra rinse and, like, a slow spin or a fast, I'm not sure which one is slower. But whatever, you, like, all these, all these like, pitch of kids and, like, an extra rinse, an extra wash, an extra pre-soak. And a, before you know it, it's, like, a two-hour process. And then there's, like, the speed cycle where it's, like, I got 30 minutes. What can you do for me? Like, that, that cycle. Like, the I don't have time for this cycle. Yeah, that's the quick one. Good. So we don't know how that process works. We do not assume that they had to hit all the buttons. You with me on that? We do not want to assume that they had to hit all the buttons. 
Again, it's not extrinsic. I know it's intrinsic. I'm just trying to bring examples. Um, okay, so what is paradise then? So Gehinnom is a process. Gehinnom is a pro Well, what's par What's Gan Eden? Simple, simple. It's the vacation in Hawaii with your beloved in the hotel and you're enjoying the other's company. And it's amazing. And it's really amazing. That is the experience of Gan Eden. Gan Eden is connecting with source. I've been saying source a lot. I mean God. But, you know, it sounds like maybe more, more new agey. So it's connecting with source in a pure, unobstructed, no guilt, no hiding. You know what often gets in the way of relationships? Secrets. Right? And everyone's like, no, no secrets that I'm going to share. Right? Yeah, we all have secrets. But the point of Gehenna is no secrets. And you know when there's no secrets? Whew. That's kind of cathartic. And it kind of feels good. And you could just be with the other. And enjoy each other. And that's, I know I'm like anthropomorphizing it. I know, I know, I know. Don't take it literally. You know, like it's literally Hawaii. But conceptually, it's the soul being at peace with itself, one with God, with spirituality, and the soul is just able to enjoy and relax in a spiritual way. It's the greatest pleasure for the soul. And in case you think I'm making this up, take a look at the text. Let's go inside. All the points that I've shared tonight are all sourced. If you want to know the sources, again, it's in your textbook. It's in your textbook, source, the, um, we're going to skip this. Abarbanel just says in text 10 that it's hard for us to imagine what spiritual reality is like. Nonetheless, here we go, the Talmud. Oh, look at this Talmud, a Talmudic source, not even Kabbalah. The Talmud says in the hereafter, which means the afterlife, in paradise, there is no eating, there is no drinking, there is no procreation, there is no commerce, jealousy, hatred, or competition. Rather, the righteous sit... Their heads adorned with crowns, again, not literally, and they delight in the radiance of the divine presence. Again, what, so, but what exactly does it feel like? <laughs> How can I tell you what exactly what it feels like? We're talking about spiritual pleasure. But the closest example that's brought down in the sources is, imagine a beautiful, loving, close relationship. When you're close with the other person and you're in that space of love, and, and that's it, you're just connected. There's nothing greater than the feeling of connection. Right? So on, uh, on this earth, it's connection to another physical human being. And for the soul in the afterlife, it's connection with its source. I saw somebody ask, are souls, can souls connect with each other, loved ones, in the afterlife? And the answer is yes. Souls can connect with each other in the afterlife. Right? Again, how can we imagine it? But just go back to my opening parable about the, two tw about the twins in utero before they're born. And they're wondering, well, what's it like? They can't imagine. I mean, it's not a real story, but theoretically, they can't imagine what it's like. Yeah? How do you know what it's like if you've never been there? Yeah? Are we still going to know each other? Are we still going to be connected? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It, for sure. I mean, now we... We're, so you and I are like, obviously, twins, you know, are connected. But yet we have the same question on the next transition, right? On the other side of this side, right? On the other side... From us, are we still going to be connected? Yeah. And with God? Yeah. In a pure way. And no secrets. No shame. 
No hiding. No, no curtains, no barriers. One thing that I share when, I, um, when I've officiated weddings, uh, something that I like to share is about a chuppah. You know, the chuppah, the wedding canopy. So traditionally, the wedding canopy has four poles and a, and a, and a covering on top. Some people use a tallit or whatever it is, like a, some sort of cloth covering or whatever, but the, and four poles, but there are no walls. You don't have like fabric around the sides. It's open. And so something I like to share is, that the message is that in a healthy relationship, I mean, ideally, ideally what we strive to is to have open communication, open, honest, free-flowing communication, no secrets, no hiding, because all of that creates tension and contortions. You know, if we're with someone and, and, and we have what to hide, then we're not fully there. And every time we're there, we're also deflecting, we're also hiding, we're also contorting. And that's not fully being there. It's not fully connecting. And so again, I'm just explaining in, in, in other terms. I mean, I've done this before in tonight's class, but that's what Gehenna is. Gehenna is the process in which all of the lies and all of the shame and all of the hiding, it's brought out to the surface so that it can be gotten rid of. That's how it's purged. You can't deal with it until it's in front of you. So you got to bring it up to the surface, right? If we were looking at how tide works, I don't know if this is how tide works, but if theoretically this is how it worked and we were looking at how it works, it would draw the stain from, this, from the fabric out, and once it's out, it can wash away. That's how it works. It has to first come up to the surface, and then it can be cleansed. So that's Gehinnom, and when it's cleansed, ah, oh, Gewaldic, now the soul can bask in its connection in that pure state. Now, a few more things. A few more things that I want to share with you, and then we're going to circle back. Uh, Rhonda's asking, will we look like ourselves in the afterlife? No, not like a physical body. There's no physical body there. But the soul will have its personality, 100%. The soul, the soul is recognizable. Yeah? How do we identify people? Sometimes by how they look, but sometimes... You know, <laughs> in truth, by, the, by who they are, by their personality. And souls have a personality, and that doesn't change. It's only the negative that, that's gotten rid of, not the positive stuff, not the beautiful stuff. It's only the, 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 it's only the stuff that we're trying to hide that is, that is purged. Don't worry, none of the good stuff. <laughs> well, whatever, none of the really good stuff. Um, only the stuff that we thought felt good, but none, none, of, the, none of the really good stuff. All right, back to our story. So what is so what is the next so what happens next? So it goes through the process, right? Journey of the soul. So the soul goes through the process of Gehinnom, max 12 months. And then and then what? Well, now it's connected. So that's it? Is it static? Is it just in one? I don't mean laundry static. Is it just that's it? It's now for the long haul, it just is what it is? No. So Judaism teaches that the soul is always evolving and ascending, getting close. It's kind of like the more the soul is refined, the more it feels God's closeness, and the more refined it gets, and the more it feels God's closeness. And it's kind of a positive feedback loop where the relationship is evolving and getting closer, and, and it keeps on evolving like that. And it's kind of like a, a human relationship where with the right work, and, you know, work from both parties, 
it can feed off itself. The work can feed off itself, and the two parties get closer and closer. The, the, the relationship gets better and better, and it's, again, a positive feedback loop. So this is true every day. In fact, there are sources that say that the soul in the afterlife is constantly in a state of ascent, always evolving higher, more spiritual, getting closer and closer to its source. However, with that said, there is a leap that happens once a year. In addition to the slow and steady ascent that happens every day, there's also a dramatic leap that happens every year on the yard site, on the anniversary of the, the passing. Now, why is this so? Well, we said in lesson two, if you recall, that, the, that the, the, the moment of passing is what actually unleashes the full power of the soul. Um, the soul is otherwise trapped in the body and, uh, and, and cannot always um, express what it wants to, which we've also been, been speaking about tonight. But when the soul leaves the body, then its, its full reality becomes opened up. And, of course, we've spoken about the flip side of that, which is, you know, you know, the mirror and coming in, in contact with the, with the full truth, which then has to be dealt with. But the, the, the power of the soul is unleashed on the, the day uh, when a person passes away. So on the annual anniversary, on the anniversary of that, the yard site, so that is when, once again, the soul, the soul's full glory, full, full brightness, once again comes to the fore, and it's ascended, it's unleashed, the power is unleashed every year in the yard site, and that explains the power of the yard site. However, notwithstanding the steady elevations and the yard site ascent, the quantum leap of the, or the, the leap of the yard site, the soul's growth is still somewhat limited. After all, the soul without a body can no longer do anything, can no longer do a mitzvah, do something positive to, to consciously build up its relationship and connection with God. It's primarily feeding off of its past accomplishments when it was in a body. Because again, the soul in heaven, in paradise, in Gan Eden, doesn't have any mitzvot to do. So yeah, the soul feels close to God and that allows it to become more refined. And again, there's this you know, positive feedback loop. But the soul's not doing anything. You know, it's not transforming any darkness to light like we can do here with our soul and body. So the soul can't do anything to jump up. This is where loved ones, in other words, those still here on earth, this is where, this is where they or we come in. Um, we can do so much for our loved ones who have passed on. There is so much that we can do. This is the gift, literally the gift that we can give them. The good deeds that we do for our loved ones who have passed on actually are considered to be a credit to the soul of their deceased. It's like they are the ones that are giving tzedakah or doing a mitzvah or studying Torah. And that greatly elevates and enhances their relationship with their source. I want to share with you a very quick text. I'm going to read it kind of quickly. Um, Yeah, I'm going to read it very quickly. But I, I, it's important that we see this inside. This is from the Rashba, one of the great um, medieval scholars, Rishonim. Take, take a look at what he says. When individuals act righteously and are outstanding in their service of the Creator, they generate tremendous merit for the souls of their parents. 
This merit is simply by virtue of their parents having served as the instruments of their births. It is the parents who enable their soul to be born into this world, which in turn enabled the many righteous deeds that they perform. The parents, therefore, have a share in their meritorious acts. However, anyone's charity or prayers on behalf of a departed person are beneficial for the soul of the deceased. It is therefore a Jewish custom to give charity and do other good deeds on behalf of the deceased in order to cause satisfaction to the soul. And thus we've answered, I believe, Donna, your question that you asked before. So when it comes to children, any good deed, and I don't know if I clarified this in a previous session, I may have been a little bit not so clarifying about this. When it comes to a child, any good deed that they do, whether or not they intend to do it in the merit of their parents or not, it acts in merit of their parents. Because the fact that they could do this mitzvah is by biological um, default due to the parents bring them into this world. So a child doing a mitzvah, studying Torah, giving tzedakah, automatically benefits, quantum leap benefit to the soul of the parents. When it comes to a non-child, that's a weird way of saying that, when it comes to any other relative or any other friend or any other person, then what elevates the soul is a, a conscious um, desire that this mitzvah or intention that this mitzvah is, gonna, is being done for the merit of of this person, of so-and-so. And this is what communities will do for those who pass away and maybe don't have immediate family. Um, perhaps there's no one to say Kaddish. Perhaps maybe there's no one visiting. The community, the rabbi, whatever, will take it upon themselves to do mitzvahs on, on their behalf, to visit the cemetery, to say Kaddish on the yard site, etc., to ensure that the soul is taken care of. Again, a child naturally does that for a parent, um, a relative, a loved one can do it, but no one should ever think that their soul is going to be somehow abandoned and not have this merit because there will be those absolutely who will have the intention and, and elevate the soul. This takes me to the final point I want to mention, and I know we're, we're like a minute or two be, uh, past the time, but very, very quickly, the role of Kaddish. I want to just clarify the role of Kaddish, and then we're going to close it out, and I'll, I'll stick around for questions. So what is the role of Kaddish? It's probably like one of the most famous Jewish prayers and, and, and ways to honor our loved ones, specifically parents. But what, what is the Kaddish? What does it mean? In your books, text number 13 is a translation of the Kaddish. We're not going to read it inside. We don't have time to read it inside. But if you read the translation, you might wonder, What's the big deal? Like, is, like why, why is the Kaddish such a, such a huge thing? It doesn't seem any, like anything special. Very simply, I want to give you a very simple explanation of the Kaddish. The Kaddish is a declaration of God's praise. It is praising God. And the message is powerful. And the message is, when the person was still alive in this world, they could do things that acted in praise of God, bearing testimony to the fact that this world has an architect and a designer, right? There's an artist that, that painted this beautiful canopy, this beautiful masterpiece that we enjoy. When we do a mitzvah, it's not only a good deed, colloquially, it bears testimony to the fact that, yes, there is an owner to this palace. 
But when a person passes away, the soul can no longer do something in this world to testify to that. And so Kaddish is a declaration, Yiskadav, Yiskadash, Rabba, where the loved one, loved one's children or other or 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 the or the congregation itself. Or the rabbi will say Kaddish for an individual who's passed away, and so that individual who can no longer, through action, bring light into the world. The, the world is be speaking, or the community is speaking of God's praise, and everyone's saying Amen, specifically due to the soul of this individual. And that acts in tremendous merit. As great as the Kaddish is, our sages tell us that a mitzvah is even greater, specifically tzedakah is even greater. That is, that's why by Yizkar, for example, the uh, memorial prayer is specifically tied to the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. So Kaddish is, is incredible. A mitzvah is, is, would be an even greater impact in this world. Tzedakah, an even greater impact. These are the ways in which we can bring the light of the soul of the person who has passed on back into the world, so to, so to speak, to continue to have an impact on this world in a tangible way. In conclusion, to summarize and to kind of bring together tonight's discussion. Tonight we explored the rest of the journey of the soul and what happens to the soul after it leaves the body and transitions away from its physical, from its physical spacesuit or glove, so to speak. And we talked about how it is we who create our own, at least immediate, afterlife experience based on the choices we make and the things that we live, the things that we do in the lives that we live. We spoke about the process of soul cleansing, Gehinnom, and how confronting our failings actually allows us to rid ourselves of them. Ignoring doesn't solve anything, but it's confronting that acts in a cathartic way to allow us to get rid of it. We explored the soul's experience of heaven and paradise, feeling that intimate closeness with God. And we discussed different ways in which the soul can ascend, whether normally each day or on the yard site, more of a leap, and of course through tzedakah, mitzvot, and kaddish. All of this certainly paints, paints a vibrant picture of what lies beyond. But even as we know this, let us, you and I, not take our eyes off of the prize that is the here and now. Which, and what, I, what I'm saying is here in conclusion, today's class, as wonderful and as incredible as heaven, paradise, Ghanaian, whatever you want to call it is, it's even more wonderful and more transformative to do a mitzvah and to make a difference right here and now in this world. Imagine a doctor or a team of doctors that please God, one day, soon, very soon, will find a cure for cancer. And imagine all of the accolades and all of the honors and all of the awards and all of the money that they might get. All of that pales in comparison to the core contribution of curing this horrific disease. And yes, the reward is wonderful and it's nice and it's pleasant, but it pales in comparison to the actual work that was done. The same thing is true with the soul. Paradise is incredible. Gan Eden is a, was a wonderful experience. But none of it, none of it, takes away from the impact that we make right now. Every moment that we have on this beautiful earth is incredibly precious. Judaism never tells us to live for another time. 
even though, even as it talks about that other time, we're meant to live for the now. We're meant to create paradise here on earth. We're meant to create a spiritual environment here in our communities, in our homes, within our families, within our world, to bring the light into this space. And yes, the soul will enjoy it afterwards and it will be connected. And please God, the trans- everything will be nice and, and, and as smooth as possible. But the main work is the work that we do now. That is the main work. And so, my friends, let us, with the spirit of tonight's class, let us commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to making a positive difference each and every day that we are blessed to walk this beautiful earth. And let us say, not literally, but let us wish each other l'chaim, to life, to a life that indeed is meaningful, a life that indeed is transformative, and a life that will indeed put us where we need to be. Not for any other time, although certainly then also, but where we need to be right now. Thank you for joining me for Lesson 4 of Journey of the Soul. Next week, we explore reincarnation. The class actually has a great title. I love this title. It's Where We Go Again. Right? The class is all about where we go again. What is the Jewish take on reincarnation? Based on everything we spoke about tonight, you and I might think that the soul's journey is pretty much spoken for. We have a sense of the arc of the journey. It comes into this body. We live our lives. It goes out. It separates. It transitions. It it goes through a cleansing process, and it ends up in that divine space, in that divine radiance, in that space of, 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 of the relationship with God. That's how it seems. But if that's the case, then what's the deal with reincarnation? Do souls come back? If they do come back, that means they're not in paradise, right? Or is the experience of paradise pushed off for a while? They get a rain check while they come back again? When would a soul come back if it does come back? There are so many questions about reincarnation. Next week, we will look at all of these questions and many more in our class exclusively devoted to understanding the Jewish position on reincarnation. You do not want to miss this class, and if you do, you will have to take it again. That was a reincarnation joke. Um, That was a joke. Yeah, so join me next week, same bat time, same bat channel. I know I did not get to all your questions, and I I want to get back to questions, and I know that you have questions um, that came up during the class. I saw some in the chat that I want to address, so I'm still staying here. Before I address questions and further, any further commentary and elucidations that are, that are helpful, I want to mention a few things that are coming up. In other words, I'm going to take 45 seconds and make a few quick announcements about some important upcoming opportunities of connection, study, and Jewish experience. Number one, the holiday of Purim is coming up. Very festive holiday, um, the celebration of Queen Esther and Mordechai and the Jewish people, etc. Or like we say about all the Jewish holidays, they try to kill us, we won, let's eat. So, um, in preparation for Purim, we have a very special um, workshop that combines artisan jewelry making with Jewish exploration and study. Um, We have with us our resident, well, I don't know, resident, but our um, jewelry designer, Donna Bogatin, who creates exquisite jewelry, and this is an opportunity to, to join. You get a jewelry kit with everything that you need to make a gorgeous 
necklace and bracelet set, either for you or someone that you, that you love. It has a grogger built into the necklace. It's beautiful. And the workshop is this coming Monday. There's also one for Passover. You can take a look at it on our website. Um, we also have upcoming Kabbalah of the Future, which is a futuristic look at the world through the lens of Kabbalah, combining basically what sounds like science fiction with Kabbalistic thought. It's going to be an incredible two-part series looking at space and time, as well as health and regeneration of, of health. March 1st and Mar March 8th, do not miss this. You are going to be blown away. Rabbi Usher Crisp, he's an incredible speaker. We've never had him before, but he is world-renowned um, scientist, futurist, and Kabbalist. He will be with us on Zoom, March 1st and 8th. Don't miss it. We have also announcing Jewish, the Jewish Bob Ross. The, I, I don't know if you know about this. Jewish Bob Ross, the joy of Jewish painting, Thursday, March 18th. Don't miss this. You will get a kit with everything you need, including like an apron smock thing, brushes, paint, a canvas, everything you need. Two-hour live instruction, interactive instruction. You will create your own Jewish masterpiece, and you're going to love it. Thursday. Everybody the same color, they can then do the condo. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. It's going to be amazing. You're going to love it March 18th. Finally, we have an event with Mrs. Marion Blumenthal Lazan, David's mom who is a Holocaust survivor and a renowned speaker and author. The, the event is called Faith and Fortitude. You, you do not want to miss this. Sunday, March 14th, this is going to be an incredible event of, um, of, of faith and fortitude and resilience and love and determination. Again, join us for this historic event uh, where Mrs. Lazan will share her riveting and inspiring story. Those are the announcements that I wanted to share. Certainly, there are more things to speak about. All of these programs and more are on our website, IntownJewishAcademy.org. Now, let's talk about a few things that I, I wanted to fill in, and I'm going to open up for questions. So number one, I saw a question that came in in the chat. question that came in in the chat was, is there a way to minimize? I'm paraphrasing the question as I saw it while I was teaching. I, I'm not looking back right now, but I think there was a question along these lines. I'm going to address what I remember. Um, is there a way to minimize the Gehenna experience by what we do now? And the answer is yes. The more catharsis that we do now in a similar way now, the less we'll have to do later. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? In other words, the more honest we are, the more transparent we are, the more real we are, the more authentic we are, the more you know, we get rid of the, the fake, the bluff, the disconnections, the, the drama, the more we get rid of that negativity, the less of a process it will be later. The process is going to happen on some level. It always happens, but it minimizes the process. And you know what? It's good for us now also, right? It's good. It's good to get rid of, you know, it's, it's good to get rid of all the stuff that makes us a little bit sequetched. Give you a story. I'll tell you a story. Tell, tell a story about a guy, a Jewish guy who goes to a Jewish tailor. He says, make me a suit. No problem. He measures it. Huh? Comes back a few weeks later, a month later. Picks up the suit from this tailor. He puts it on. Or Sorry. He, um, he holds up the suit. 
right? It's on the hanger, and he sees it looks completely wrong. One sleeve is shorter, the other one's longer. One leg is this way, one leg is that. The whole thing looks messed up. He says to the tailor, like, something looks wrong. He's like, no, 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 put it on. Don't worry, put it on. He puts it on, and it's, and yeah, it's like one sleeve is here, and one sleeve is there, and one leg is this way, and one leg is, the whole thing is wrong. He says, I'm wearing it, it's not right. He's like, you're standing wrong. You have to go like this, right? If you go like this, it's perfect. Yeah, something like that. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is we can always contort and make it work. But at some point, it hurts. The back, it hurts, right? It hurts with contortion. So who are we fooling? Who are we contorting? Why, why would we hurt ourselves? Yeah? So we could, it could either happen now or later. It's going to happen. So might as well do it now. We'll be happier anyway. <laughs> you know, letting go of stuff, right? is really, is really cathartic. I don't only mean going, um, what's her name? Con uh, Mary Kondo or whatever. I don't only mean like that, getting rid of stuff, although also, but getting rid of the, the stuff, like our stuff, not that stuff, like our inner stuff is also good. Honesty and transparency, that's essentially the experience afterwards. Okay, that addresses hopefully a question that was asked, you know, is what can we do or tshuva, whatever. Teshuva is a fancy Hebrew word for basically purging, purging the negative. Now, in the here and now. Might as well, might as well, let's, let's do the best we can right now. All right, um, other questions that you had, I'm going to start looking at the chat, but please unmute and jump in. And if I did not address a question that you brought up before the class, Please remind me, and I'm hoping we touched on it enough where maybe you have the answer, or if not, bring it up now and let's, uh, let, let's do it. Why do you need a minion? And, um, for, for Kaddish? Not being sexist about this, but women are not encouraged to say Kaddish out loud. I, I don't know. Women say Kaddish by us. I guess it's, by, it's, pers it's, by, it's synagogue by synagogue, and, and it's, that, that's for... That's for more technical reasons, maybe, you know, modest, I, I don't know. By us, women say Kaddish, and, and, and that's how we roll. I understand different synagogues have their own traditions, but at the core, the, the, the first, so that's the, for the second question. The first question about a minion is because what is the Kaddish? It's basically praising God in the world, because the, the soul is no, no longer has a body to make an impact in the world. The Kaddish is kind of, again, through at least words, replace, it's not like fully replacing it, but it's somewhat replacing the light of the soul in the world with a public declaration of praise. Well, that public declaration of praise that brings light into the world has to be a public setting, which requires a minion. So in other words, by definition, to bring light into the world requires a world, or at least a representation of the world, i.e. a minion. Does that make sense? Did I skip that? I, I try to draw all the, all the pieces to draw the line. Okay, let me, let, me, let me go a little bit. Let me do this again. Okay, so what is a minion? A minion is a quorum, is the minimum number that constitutes a congregation. In other words, a public setting in Judaism. I know what you're thinking. Ten is a public setting? Yeah, in Judaism, ten is a public setting. Yeah. Ten is a public That's what it is. So if you're saying Kaddish in a private setting, Sinish can Kaddish. It's not Kaddish. It's not a public declaration of God's praise if it's not a public setting. Are you with me on that? In other words, Kaddish is defined as praising God publicly to bring God's light into the world. The soul can't, so now on behalf of the soul, we're publicly bringing God's light into the world. Publicly. 
to have a minion, to be public, it has to have a minion. So again, you could do it privately, that's fine, but it's not it's not the same thing as a it's not it's not it's not what the Kaddish is. The Kaddish is a public declaration, so you need that. But we're in a, this is a different this is a different time. I mean it's already done. I said Yisker by myself. Right. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So Yisker can be done for sure. Yisker is different. Yisker is not a public declaration. Kaddish is. Everything, yeah, there's everything has its own place. So Kaddish is meant to be a public thing. Yizkar is also done in the congregation, but you could do it privately as well. Kaddish is specifically a public declaration. So Kaddish, you need a minion. It's definitely when somebody, for somebody who died, but yeah. Yizkar is the anniversary and the holidays and all? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yizkar is, on the, Yizkar, is on, Yizkar is on Yom Kippur, on Shemini Atzeres, at the end of Sukkot. It's on the last day of Passover, and it's on the second day of Shavuot. So the three major holidays plus Yom Kippur. It's four days, four times a year. Yizkar. Okay. And it's typically done with a con- with congregation, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. But Kaddish specifically is, by definition, a public declaration of, God, of God's praise, which needs a public setting to do a public declaration. A okay. private declaration is what we do all the time. We have other prayers. Kaddish is specifically a, a public declaration. All right. Next, let's, uh, let's, yeah, Howard, go ahead. Hold on, don't forget to unmute. Don't forget to unmute. I know, depending on the device, it could be in a, in a different place. There you go. Okay. Uh, what I get from tonight is, uh, I find it useful to disabuse from the notion that there's a great scorekeeper in the sky. That's, that's good to disabuse that. Right. And that, that um, sins are also their own reward. And sins are also their no, I mean that that that's a that's a that's a major conversation. I mean the short answer is we don't know. The short answer is there's no way for us to know why a good person suffers. Why 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 a good person has um, it, it deals with adversity. There's there's no way for us to understand that and to make sense of that. Now we believe that that the, the challenge is only in this, this side, of, this side of, of, of the fence, so to speak. On the other side, it's going to be, it's, it's the, it's be you know, the, way, the way it needs to be as far as good. But, but to explain why there's challenge, there's suffering for, 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 for the righteous, for good people, that there's no explanation. And to be honest, I don't think we even want an explanation because that would somehow do away with, with, with suffering. In other words, what I mean by do away with, that would somehow justify it, and I don't think we ever want to be in that place where, where, we can, where we can make sense of it and therefore it doesn't bother us. We lose our humanity when we seek to understand and explain human suffering. Does that make sense? In the process of answering the question, we become less empathetic, less compassionate, and indeed less human. It's like Elie Wiesel, he was once speaking to a group of high school students, and one of them asked, how could God have allowed the Holocaust to happen? And his response was, if I answered your question, 
would you be able to sleep better at night? It's like, why are you, I, I'm not, I don't mean you, I mean he was telling the, the high school student, he's like, why are you asking? Because it's bothering you and you don't want to be bothered anymore? Be bothered. In other words, it's better to be bothered by the question than to not be bothered by having the answer, right? Wait, th think of the alternative. It's like, oh, I understand why suffering happens. All right, makes sense. I'm okay with it. I'm, it's, it's okay that, uh, that, that suffering happens. We should never be okay with that. We should be stuck with the question and, 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 and demand by God that God end the suffering, that God end all suffering and bring only blessing. That's where we need to be. So I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. And I have the question. And I'm sticking with the question. And not just the question and throwing my hands up in the air, but first of all, as human beings, we have to do everything we can to be there with others and to, and to help in any way that we can and to storm the heavens and to, and to demand, not just to pray, but to demand that, that that suffering be removed. But one thing's for sure that on the other side, um, the, the closeness that was created is, um, is, is certainly enjoyed. Certainly enjoyed. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Um, all right, ch jump in. Just unmute and jump right in. Have I had a question? Yes. Um, you know, it, it seems to me like um, there's a contrast between, you know, the kind of the way um, the, the Christian or Islam, kind of the way we... Uh, think about uh, reward and punishment, the kind of scorekeeping like you, you described at the beginning, that at the end is a final reckoning of, uh, you know, reward and punishment and uh, good and evil. And, um, and that, you know, as kind of what was said before, that for Judaism, it's more that the, the um, performance of mitzvah, the attainment of holiness is a reward in itself. But honestly, I think there's... There's almost like a disconnect with the the idea and also, you know, with the way that in Judaism things are spoken about, you know. Like, I wonder how ideas of forgiveness come into, or requesting forgiveness come into uh, Judaism. It seems like there's all the time, it seems like a, a, the idea of scorekeeping comes into, into the Jewish um, daily practice of asking for forgiveness, asking for redemption. Even in the Bible, talking about stories of minute to minute, if the Jewish people did this or that, there would be reward or punishment that was, yeah. in essence, a scorekeeping. It, you know, right. the, the spiritual aspect and the practical aspect seem to be disconnected to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I, this is what I was trying to mention this before as well, when, when Ray was asking some, some very good questions. It's really important to re-understand, to understand again, to take another look at all of these sources. And when we take another look at the sources through a different lens, suddenly everything changes, right? So, for example, when we pray, there's two ways to look at prayer. Thank you. There's two ways to look at prayer. Method number one, or, or, or way number one. Prayer is me asking God for what I need with the assumption that God either doesn't know what I need or number two is unwilling to give me what I need unless I beg for it. That's what we think of prayer. Now, honestly, and I'm not, I'm not speaking about you specifically, if that's what we believe about God, then we might as well, we might as well give up. If our understanding of God is a, is a petty human God that needs to be pumped up and feel good 
because he has low self-esteem and be made to feel like he's awesome and the best and then we go in for the ask and that's the only way to get what we want or otherwise God doesn't know. It reminds me of what the Bardichva Rebbe once said to an atheist. He met this great Hasidic rabbi, met an atheist. I didn't even finish my sentence. I don't know if you know that because I don't even know how to finish that sentence. I mean, if that's what we believe, then <laughs> what are we doing? Then it's, it's honestly, it's, again, it's not, I'm not saying to you specifically, it's embarrassing. Again, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking, it, that notion of God is actually, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Straight up. Right? But that's what we believe. Why? Because that's what everyone else says. And somehow we've been, we've been suckered into, we've been lured into that. That's not what Judaism believes. And you can pull out the machzer, you can pull out the siddur, you can pull out the chumash, today to tomorrow. It's not what it says. That's what it says through the lens of whatever it is, but that's not what it says. But then why do we ask for forgiveness? One second, so one second. Let me explain about, let me explain about, about, about tefillah in general. About tefillah. What is prayer? God needs us to tell him how great he is. God, you're the best. You're amazing. Now I need a few bucks. The Bredichever said, let me finish my story that I interrupted. I interrupted my interruption to get back to my point, which is very, very um, unusual for me. I usually go with my interruption. So let me get back to my interruption. Bredichever once met, once met a so-called a self-reporting uh, atheist. And he said, he was talking to him and, you know, about God and whatever. And at the end, he said, you know what? The same God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in, right? You don't believe in God because how could God or why would God or whatever it is? He said, you know what? I agree with you because if that's what God is, I also reject that God. It's so important to understand what's going on here. So what is prayer? God does not need us to praise him to tell him how good of a job he's doing, to butter him up, to ask for what we need. It's not necessary. But you know what is necessary? It's necessary for us to know the truth. God doesn't need to hear that God created the world. We need to hear that. It's healthy for us to hear that. It's not about God. It's about us. And that sounds, may sound selfish. It's not selfish. It's not selfish. It's a journey. Tefillah, the reason why we say the words out loud is we're not, spe we're not speaking to God, we're speaking to ourselves. Right? We have to say that part of the laws of prayer is you have to say the words loud enough, not to disturb the other guy or the other person, but loud enough that you can hear yourself. Why? Because we're talking fundamentally to ourselves. We're telling ourselves what's true. We're telling ourselves where we come from. We're telling ourselves what's the reality. We remind ourselves. And then as we talk about what we need in that context, we remind ourselves that, be, that why do we need the money? Not to go to Hawaii, although whatever. But we need the money, right? And the resources and the health to continue along the themes of what we've been talking about, which is we are custodians in this beautiful world that God created. So we begin so get the Zimra with, with verses of praise where we talk about God for us to remember the truth, for us to be conscious of the truth. I mean, buzzwords today, right? Yoga, meditation, mindfulness. It's like, dudes, we've got this for 3,000 years. We do this every morning. 
but we somehow think that we're trying to petition some dude on a throne with a long white beard who might otherwise smote or smite us, depending on the, uh, the usage of the word, if we didn't, you know, butter him up and then ask in the right way, and that's like gewalt. We should never think that. Such a petty God? Such a human God? Such a lowly God? I mean, we wouldn't do the same to our children. What, we make our children beg for what they need and come to us and plead for what we need? That's, that's cruel. We wouldn't do that to our kids. We believe that God would do that to us. No, prayers for us to, to reconnect with the source. And when we ask, we ask from a new space. It's not about telling God what we need. God knows what we need more than, what, more than we know. We, we think we know what we need. God knows really what we need. But when we ask for what we need in the Amidah, in the Shemona Esra, 18 petitions, when we ask for God for what we need, after reconnecting with the truth, so the, the, the requests, the needs are different for ourselves. We realize that we didn't need the money to splurge on whatever it was. We need resources to do more good in the world. Take care of our families, do more good in the world. Right? We need the blessings for, for the higher purpose. And then we ask forgiveness. Not because otherwise God won't forgive us. We ask forgiveness to express our own recollections of the things that we've fallen short of. So whether it's every day with the Tachon and after the Amidah, or whether it's Yom Kippur with the Achetz and the Ashamnus, either way it's the same thing. You, God doesn't know what we did. We're confessing to God. What religion is this? We're confessing to God? Oh God, in case you didn't know what I did last Tuesday, I w I've been meaning to keep it a secret, but you know what I decided to tell you? And God's like, oh my God, I cannot believe it. How dare you? That's what's going on? Chas v'sham, God forbid. Right? And again, I'm not criticizing, I'm just, I'm, I'm getting animated because I feel passionate about this, that we know the truth, right? The confessional prayers, the ones where we beat the chest, the shamno, I did this, did that, did the other, it's for us. It's for us to own it. It's for us to admit it. It's for us to express it. Otherwise, we hide it. I don't need to tell. All of us here know what it's like to do something and hide it, right? We did it as kids. It's like we dropped it. It broke. And then we're like, well, I guess no one will notice if I quickly segue out of this room and pretend I was never here, right? At some point, we've done that on some level, in some context, Right? And that's how it goes. So you know what that prayer is? Ashamnu, this is me. Let me face myself. That same soul catharsis, we have an opportunity to do each and every day. The tragedy is that no one ever explained prayer to us. That, that's the sad truth, that no one explains tefillah. So prayer becomes the most boring experience in ritual in Judaism. Prayer becomes the most disconnected experience in all of Judaism. We get excited about matzah on Passover, graggers on Purim, shofars on Rosh Hashanah, certainly dipping the apple in honey. Who doesn't love that, right? Pomegranates galore. We love all the traditions. It's wonderful. Yeah, mitzvah, sure, wrapped filling. I'll do it. Who doesn't mind? Yeah, it's so Jewish blood pressure. That's fun. Lighting Shabbat candles. Bring light into the world. Kiddush, Friday night, challah. It's wonderful. Everything's great. Prayer? Sorry, Rabbi. Nope. Doesn't mean anything to me. And tefillah, prayer, is meant to be the most real experience. That's the irony. It's the, old, it's the one ritual. It's not even a ritual. It's the one practice in Judaism that's meant to be authentically me. Authentically me, connecting with my truth, connecting with my source, connecting with myself, connecting with my needs on a higher level. It's probably because 
it really takes a deep look that it's easier to say, let me just mumble words. On second thought, mumbling words is meaningless. I'm going to skip it altogether. That's the evolution of that, right? It's so deep. It's so powerful. It's so meaningful that it's hard to do. And so when it's hard to do it, it's easier to say, oh, I'll just look at some words. And then it's like, well, what's the point of doing these words if I didn't write them and I don't mean them? And that's the evolution. And that's how it just becomes meaningless. But to, I, I went a little uh, extra on your question. Your question is, how do we say that Judaism is all about peace and love when we have all of this, you know, you sinned, you got to confess. Again, who are we speaking to? We're just expressing our own honest-to-goodness Reality. This is me. This is what I need to improve. Straight up. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's being honest with oneself, which is a cathartic experience. And we can have that every day. We don't have to wait till after 120, right? We do that every day. It's incredibly cathartic. Now, you also asked the question about, well, how do we explain the consequences or punishments in the Torah? Again, commentaries do it. You've got to go through each story, right? Starting from Adam and Eve, were they punished by being banished from Gan Eden? Or was it being... Kicked out of the womb, so to speak. Don't take my paradise that I created. Build your own, right? Right? Create your own paradise. Every story, the course we did right before this, as, as I think you know, was um, Secrets of the Bible. Every story in Torah, there's a way to understand it, and there's a way to really understand it. I mean, sorry, there's a way to read it, and there's a way to really understand it. It's, this is, we don't have enough time to go through every single thing, but know this, that nothing I'm telling you I'm making up. This is, I'm not making up anything. This is well-sourced, well-sourced. And if you're wondering, well, how come we've never heard this before? Like, where is this Judaism? And I'll tell you, it's a crime. It's a crime that Judaism has been presented in any different way. And it's no wonder why it's been rejected, either on some level by us or by our kids or by our parents or whoever, because... Yeah, who wants to run after a God who's low and petty and doesn't know things and will only give me something if I, uh, you know, do this, that, or the other? I mean, what is that? What kind of, what kind of, the British just said, the same God that you don't believe in, that you reject, I also reject. That's not, that's not the Jewish God. And, and maybe it's because we've been exiled amongst other nations for so many thousand, for 2,000 years. Maybe we've picked up a little bit too much information from other sources. Maybe, maybe. That's probably, that's probably part of it. Probably a big piece of it. So no judgment, but we have to know what we believe in or we have to know what Judaism believes in. Tochacha, um, mom, you're asking about the rebuke in the Torah. The same thing, the same thing. You look in Kabbalah, it's the same thing. It says the curses in the Torah are the greatest blessings. You have to know how to read it. Again, we could go through each thing, but it's, there's too many, it's too much to talk about. If you think, you know, Rabbi, I love you, but you're wearing rose-colored glasses, I, I, I'm just telling you what it says everywhere. We talked about Maimonides, we talked about Talmud, we talked about um, Jewish philosophy, we talked about Kabbalah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Just have to, anyway. All right, other questions. I feel like we've, we've done that point very well. Richard, go ahead. But not on that point, but it can't be on that point, that's the only stipulation. Go. It's, I don't think it is. Cut me off if it is. Oh, you know I will. <laughs> I, I know you will. I have in the past. <laughs>
I got the fastest mute button in the uh, in the West. Not Kidding. Do it. Do I'm kidding. Yeah, go ahead. A little bit. That tefillah is a little bit like Gehenna. We're confronting ourselves. Yeah. Cleansing ourselves. Yeah. Actually doing a little bit of cleansing yeah. with our prayers. Yeah. It's the same as Gehenna. I mean, it's a lousy correlation. No, it's good. But it's... it's, it's yeah. It's, it's real. It's authentic. It's hard to be real. It's easy to be fake. Are you kidding me? You ever see Instagram? It's so it's so much easier to be fake than real. I don't have it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not judging. No, 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 no. I'm just joking. No, but it's so it's so hard to be authentic. It's so hard to look at ourselves and be honest. It's so hard. It's like a little. But I mean, I, it's. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. It's. It, I don't want to use the word Gehenna, but it's a little bit. It is cathartic, and it's real, and it's honest, and it's. It takes a, it's about taking a, a real honest look at ourselves, and that's not fun. It's not fun. That's why it's the hardest thing. Show me anything that's harder than tefillah. Nothing is hard. Nothing is, there's, does it, there's nothing close in Judaism that's as hard as prayer. Prayer is the most, it's like, what am I, most, just the reality is like, what are we doing here? Like, what, what's, what, what are we doing chanting words? Like, what, what's, like, what's happening? The Talmud says, right? The Torah says, serve God with your heart. The Talmud says, Ezeo avodah What is serving God with your... How do you serve God with your heart? Like, what does that even mean? Serve God with your hands, give tzedakah, with your mouth. What? Serve God with your heart. What is that? How do you serve God with your heart? The Talmud says, that's prayer. It's a deep experience. It's, not, it's, not, it's nothing that we do. It's something... I mean, it's not like... You don't just do it. You have to experience it. Feel as an ex- prayer is an experience. Anyway, yeah, I agree with you. It's a, it's it sounds harsh, but I in, in in theory I understand what you're saying, or in concept I understand what you're saying. Questions, other questions that came up. I know there were other questions that I did not yet address. Rabbi, um, I don't want to belabor the point, but I sure. just want to follow up. You know, the, the one part of what you said. You know, I understand on Yom Kippur you're saying. You know, you pound your chest, and you, 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 right. you uh, is, um, an ownership aspect of it. Right. But, you know, there's the other part that is the reckoning, you know, that there is the part where it's like, and grant me long life, and grant me health, and grant me children, and grant me... So there is like a, a quid pro quo, you know. It does seem, at least from a, a non scholar side. A hundred percent. Reward and punishment and, and some sort of pettiness there, you know? I, I understand exact. trust me, I understand super well exactly what you're asking and where the question's coming from and why it appears like that. The Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke on the yard set of his mother, Vav Tishrei, the sixth of Tishrei, and he asked the question on Rosh Hashanah. It's all about coronating God as king. How, when you're standing in front of the king, how are you asking for what you want? The whole idea is submission to the king. So how do you ask what you want? And the Rebbe explained that on Rosh Hashanah, when we ask, when we petition God for life, etc., it's not because I want life. It's standing before God and saying, God, I'm ready to go. Not, sorry, not go, but I'm ready to do what, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. 
I'm one more, one more year, I am committing myself to being absolutely of service to you. I'm ready to go. To do this, here's what I need. Not for myself, but in service of you. That's the nature of the petition, specifically on Rosh Hashanah, and, and, and in a similar way even every day, but specifically Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's not a day of ego. It's not a day of ego at all. And so the, the, the requests are coming from a completely different place, from a place of surrender, being of service. It's kind of like a soldier in the army who says, I'm ready to go, here's what I need to be successful. Or it's like a, 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 an employee in a company who says, I'm ready to go. Here's what I need. Here are the tools that I need. And you don't hear somebody who's being um, um, greedy to ask, oh, I need this, that, or the other. No, you hear somebody who recognizes what they're doing and, and wants to own it and is ready to go and needs resources. That's where the, that's where the requests are coming from. And again, I'm just telling you a specific, I understand, I un- trust me, I understand the appearance of it. But I, I'm, I'm literally telling you something that uh, an insight that was taught specifically by Rosh Hashanah. And I know, I know the Unasana Toka prayer that talks about Rosh Hashanah, it's written, you know, Kippur, it's signed, who will live, who will die, who by this, who by that, who by lapidation, I don't even know what lapidation is after all these years, right? Who by earthquake, who by pestilence, who by sword, who by famine. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know, I know the prayer, everyone gets emotional oh. by it. Once, I, sorry? Stoning, lapidation, stoning. Is lapidation stoning? Okay. Lapidation is stoning. Okay. Okay. You didn't know. I thought. I told you. I thought it was by. Fi- it's not fire. No. Lapidation is stoning. Lapidation is stoning. See that? The more you know with that little, um, little star thing. Look. Yeah. So, it, it's it's um. I, the the optics are the optics. You got to understand where it's coming from. You have to, uh, and you, you, the, once you see a bigger picture, you realize what, what everything is talking about. It's hard to go into every single detail. We have to, listen, I, I get the starting point. I understand the, the, the perspective. The, the challenge is that it's literally undoing every inch of our understanding of Judaism. And, and there's no shortcut there. All right, so we have time. Maybe not tonight, but we have time in general to get a new picture of Judaism. I think like this. This is giving ourselves a gift. And the best thing we can do is, as well, give this to our kids as well. A different perspective of Judaism. Even if we didn't have it growing up, a different perspective of Judaism. It's not the stuff of Baba Mises fairy tales and angry gods. It's, not, it's just not. It's just not. For that, they have, I don't know, dragon stories, whatever. I'm sure there are names of books for that that the kids are reading. Right? They, there's other stuff about that stuff. Right, this is this is real stuff. This is real stuff. It's authentic stuff. It's honest stuff. It's it's about improvement. It's about connection. All right, it's getting very late. It's great to see you all. I am going to sign off. Um, we're back on next week. If you have any questions that we did not cover, and I know that there's some stuff we didn't cover, um, feel free to to touch to touch base. You can text me, call me, shoot me an email. Happy to explore further. All right, see you all later. Shavuot tov. Have a great week. See you soon, everybody. Take care. All right. See y'all. Be well.